Okay, this is our eighth session of hermeneutics. We're in the exegetical portion. Go ahead and open for us, and then we'll uh, get into the lesson for today. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to study the method by which the intent of the authors is recovered in the in your special verbal revelation so that we will know what you intended to communicate to us. We're thankful that this literal grammatical hermeneutic has been preserved and that there are faithful men who are prepared to teach it. We pray for the enablement of the Holy Spirit for our class and our teacher. We may have the teaching and the learning that we need to progress. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Steve. Well, today, as I said, uh, we're going to look at word studies. That's the next major area. And it'll probably take our entire session. It may even spill over into next week. But we do that because this is such an important area. But last week, I gave you a little bit of an introduction to the whole area of exegesis, or if you're simply using the English text as we are, then we call that Bible study methods. Technical term for it that includes the original languages is exegesis. That's why I title it there. But the process is the same. The principles are the same. The only difference is dealing with the English text, you only have access to that translation rather than uh, the original. But uh, many of you have already had a little bit exposure to at least Greek, so uh, in some ways some of the things you'll do may be in the area of exegesis. So we start the process by asking the text questions. We talked about that last time. I gave you three major questions that we look at. Then I gave you seven other questions that are useful as well, primarily in narrative material. And then we talked about meditation. When the Bible speaks of meditation, it deals with essentially this process that we're going through. It doesn't specify it in detail, but you get hints of that. And we even saw from uh, the Joshua passage that... There are some indications in that passage that speak of the process that we're talking about here. So, today, what I want to do is continue in the process of the science and art of of interpretation. And we're in the exegetical portion. We've looked at observation as the first major phase of this process or this method of approach of studying scripture. And in observation, all we are attempting to do is become aware of what is in the text. What is there? What do I see? We're not trying to interpret yet. That's the next phase that we're going to look at further today. And we spent a lot of time on observation because observation is very important. If you do not make sufficient observations, whether it be in the scientific realm 
or in the exegetical realm, then your interpretations are going to be limited to those observations. So you want to make sure that you can observe what is in the text and as carefully as possible. And I even emphasize that it involves not just the words, but how the words are arranged and sentences, paragraphs, etc. So we spent a lot of time looking at observation. We began to look at interpretation. Now we're going to look at not only what is there, but take it the next step. What does it mean? What is the meaning? Why are things arranged in the order that they're arranged? Or why does you, why does Paul select a certain word? Why does he use this figure of speech or whatever the case may be? We're, we're probing for meaning now. In actual practice, I'll remind you again, you'll go back and forth. After you've thought about what is there, you'll begin to think in terms of what does it mean, and then you'll go back and make more observations in order to understand the point that you're uh, trying to discern. So today we're going to go one more step. We ended the last part last week looking at the text. We'll talk about that some more in a moment here, and then we'll take it to the the next stage. The bottom line, again, is we're seeking the author's intended meaning. What did the author intend to communicate? That's the bottom line of everything that we're doing in this entire course. And in this phase, now we're going to really focus on what does Paul or Moses or Luke or whoever, what did they intend by the material that they recorded for us? So we're going to look at interpretation, stressing the author's willed or intended meaning. What did he intend? We looked at the text, and I mentioned that when you're looking at only the English version, you don't spend too much time looking at the text, but it's an area that I wanted you to be aware of because it's very important that you have confidence that the text that you're looking at is, in fact, what the original author wrote. So the whole science of textual criticism enables us to determine that original text. And that's all I'm going to emphasize on it. I wanted you to have a little background on it. Very important, however, is the next area. We call that area word studies. In fact, there are entire ministries that are sometimes based on word studies or even a topical series you might do might be almost entirely based on word studies. So this is a very important area. And virtually every passage that you will look at, to some extent, you'll be doing word studies because word studies are designed to help you understand the meaning of those words. Once you understand the meaning of the particular words in their particular context, now everything else 
surrounding those words will, will make better sense. Now, you won't do the extensive word studies in every word, obviously, or you'd never get out of a passage. You'd have hours and hours of study. But you want to select the most important words to do an extensive word study. So I'm going to give you something of a complete process or procedure for doing a word study. And from there, you can modify it depending on what the need is in terms of the level of understanding that you need concerning any given word in the passage. But in some ways, you're looking at the passage and trying to make sure that you understand the meaning that the author intended by selecting every word in the passage that you're looking at, even though you will not do a word study on every word. So this is kind of fundamental. This is basic because the words in the text are the basic building blocks of not only the passage, but words in general are the basic building blocks of all of language. So we need to understand the words. It's also important because of our attitude towards scripture. We believe in what we have described as verbal inspiration. Inspiration in that we believe that the biblical text is God-breathed, or in other words, the text that we have is what God intended for us to have. It is his revelation that he has intended, and he worked through the original authors to accomplish that task of recording that that he intended. And we add the word verbal inspiration because there are some theologians that don't go to that extent and say that the ideas are inspired, not necessarily the words, but there's biblical basis to believe that the very words themselves, and we looked at some of those Biblical passages when we're talking about the nature of scripture. So we believe in verbal inspiration. And if the very words are inspired, then it's very important that we are careful in our study of even individual words. And word studies will help us to do that. And I believe that this is probably the single most important area of independent Bible study that uh, you you will have because it uh, gets to the meaning of each of the words in any biblical text. So before I give you the process, let's talk about characteristics of words. And when we speak of characteristics, we're talking somewhat generally This is true of words, whether they're in the Bible or words in any literature that you might study, even technical literature, where it's especially important that you understand the words that are used. In a physics book, you need to understand the the words that are used by the writer of the text. And if there's any confusion, he will define the words that he is using so that you understand how he is using those terms. So these characteristics are broad characteristics and most certainly apply to biblical words as well. First of all, 
very broadly and generally, we can say that words are simply arbitrary signs. And what I mean by that is the sounds that we utilize to convey a single word are there's nothing special about them. They're somewhat arbitrary, and we know that because there's different languages, and the same object or the same thing that we might point to, we utilize different sounds to convey the same idea. So they're arbitrary. Now, they're set within a language, but uh, even within a language, there's a, a bit of arbitrary to them, I guess you could say. So, the English word will sound perhaps different from a Greek word or a Hebrew word or any language, and we could say that they're arbitrary. But within a language, we use them uh, to convey a particular meaning, and sometimes that meaning is uh, broader, and sometimes it's more narrow. So that's the first characteristic of all words. All words also have what we would describe as a range of meaning. In other words, the same sounds that we use, or the same nouns that we use to describe a particular thing or an object, has a range of meaning. Some words have a narrow range, and some words have a wide range. And we've already used the illustration of trunk, and we use the circle to represent the range of meaning. And within the circle, the word trunk can have a variety of meaning meanings. And the reason I use this is because that same word, that same sound, spelled T-R-U-N-K, has a very wide range and a very diverse range. So you need a context, and I'll get to that next. But we use this illustration. If you're talking about a car, the context deals with an automobile. Then you think of the trunk as a particular part or compartment of the car. And it's very, very different from that of uh, an elephant. It's not in the rear. But, in fact, it's in the front, and it looks nothing like the trunk of a car. And in a context with an animal, your mind automatically has a different and totally different image than that that you have if you're talking about the trunk of a car. Similarly, the trunk of a tree, we talked about a communication trunk line or communication trunk, uh, the box in an attic probably comes closest to the box at the back of a car, but it is still very, very different, and certainly different from an elephant and a tree and a communication trunk line. So, words have this characteristic, and the word trunk has a very diverse and wide range of meaning, but you can expect that from uh, virtually any word. Words seldom have a singular meaning in terms of only one sense or one meaning. So words have a range of meaning. And, as I've already indicated, thirdly, most important, and this is true in general, 
It is true when you are communicating to someone else and you use words, the words that you select in communicating, you have a meaning in view or in mind that you're trying to communicate. And we desire, at least, and sometimes expect the listener to think in terms of the same meaning. So it's determined by context. And we give a a set of words. We put them within a sentence. And sometimes we'll speak a series of sentences. And within that context, we select words that have a particular meaning. So the final determiner of all meaning is context. And particularly the meaning of words. So context determines meaning. That's why in the assignment, that assignment number three that I gave you, that's designed to get you into the paragraph that you're going to focus your study on because the meaning within that paragraph is determined by the context. So you have to know the context. So it's true of not only words, but any part of literature or writing or communication Context always determines meaning. Thirdly, a meaning is assigned by an author. And I said something to that effect already in in talking about context. But we assign meaning. In other words, we come up with an idea and we select the word and we assign a meaning. In other words, we have an intended meaning. So also do the authors of scripture. They select words. And there are, even in the original languages of the Bible, there are synonyms. So an author could have selected a different word, but in a particular context, he will select a particular word. And he will assign a meaning to that word. He has a thought that he's trying to convey by that selection. So, the major characteristics of words are they're arbitrary, they have a range of meaning, they're determined by context, and it's the author that assigns the meaning. That's why we try to figure out what is the author's intended meaning, because he has a meaning in in mind in selecting it. Fifthly, Terms or words change over time. And that's true in our culture. That's that's true in virtually every culture. That's true of language. And it is most certainly true of the Bible. You can see sometimes changes from the way a word is used. And sometimes they're radical, but most of the time they're just slight in terms of the differences, but they do change. You might find a word in the Old Testament that has a particular meaning in a particular context, and later on, even in the Old Testament, but later on in history, it acquires an additional meaning or a new meaning or a different meaning sometimes. And that is true when you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament as well. Sometimes in the New Testament, you'll find out that the writers of the New Testament assign new meanings to words that you might find in the Old Testament. So, you need to keep that in mind 
because if you study a word in the New Testament, it already has a background. And in understanding the New Testament word, you might have to take into account that Old Testament background in order to properly understand the way the word is used in the New Testament by the New Testament author. So words change over time. And to illustrate how words kind of in a drastic way change over time, let me use an example in our culture. Here we have a mouse, and this is not a typical mouse. In fact, even these mice, I guess you could say, is that correct, Barb? <laughs> uh, a mouse has changed as technology has changed. And I think initially when Apple computers came up or invented the device, it had a tail on it. And I think it looked more like a mouse than the more modern one. But it takes on a new meaning. So you use the same sounds, the same spelling, the same word. But now with a, a change in technology, we've assigned, Apple computer assigned that name to this device that is used in manipulating words and uh, different parts of the programs of a computer. So words take on new meaning. Another word, I think somebody suggested it, uh, the word gay. Maybe I did, I don't remember, but we talked about that in our culture. That has a new meaning than what it did, say, 50 years ago. If you use the word gay, the only thing you would think about is more of an emotion or a, a feeling, a, a sense within one's, oneself. Uh, today, if you use that word, depending on the context, it can refer to a lifestyle. So words change over time and sometimes take new meaning. In fact, you will see this in uh, terms that you will study, and you're, you're going to find, and I've made the statement that when you come across a theological term, every theological term that I'm aware of has a normal, everyday sense or a sense from the culture itself. And now, sometimes even from the Old Testament, it takes on a theological sense. So it can have a literal, earthly, you might say, or everyday sense. But now, in some context in the New Testament, it takes on now a theological meaning. Now, I've mentioned that I'm teaching through the book of Romans right now. We came across the word salvation, and in that class that I'm teaching, we've come across that word before, rather common word in the New Testament. But just as a reminder, I reminded the class how that word has an everyday sense, and that everyday sense is to be saved or be protected or delivered from some physical harm. And I use the passage in Acts chapter 27 where Paul is exhorting the crew on the ship. Remember, he's being transferred to Rome and they're in a storm and the storm is very severe and they're about to lose everything. 
And Paul, in that in that context, exhorts the men to follow his instructions in order for them to be saved. Now, if you look at the word in its context, and New American Standard translates it in that word, in that way, to be saved. He's not talking about their eternal destiny in that context. He's not talking about spiritual things. He's dealing with a salvation from the danger of the the storm that they find themselves in. In fact, both the noun and the verb for salvation or saved is used in that context about three times, and in every one of those contexts it's used in that more everyday sense. I used the example in the Old Testament, where oftentimes if a city is attacked and they're able to ward off the attack, in some context it'll use the Hebrew corresponding word for salvation. We were saved from the enemy, from destruction, from from death. So a salvation in the sense of salvation from any physical or material danger but the, the Bible, beginning with the Old Testament, and in particular in the New Testament, uses the same identical word in the sense of a salvation or a deliverance from a spiritual issue. And in some cases, a ultimate destiny concept. But one of the points I was making, because in Romans chapter 5, it uses the word not in that that sense that oftentimes people think when they encounter the word salvation, they think immediately salvation from the ultimate penalty of sin, salvation from hell, from damnation. But the point I was making Sunday was that word is used an equal number of times in a temporal present tense sense in the New Testament in terms of a salvation from the very power of sin. So you have slight differences of meaning depending on the context. But that's an example of terms taking on new meaning in the New Testament from an old meaning that is easily understood. And that's true of virtually every theological term. The word for church, for example, ecclesia, It has a literal, everyday sense of simply an assembly. And in Acts chapter 19, it's used in two different kinds of assemblies there. One of them is just a mob that is about to uh, destroy Paul. And another one refers to uh, an assembly in a courtroom or a legal assembly. The same word, ecclesia, is used in that sense. That word, ecclesia, is also the word that is used for church. And I believe that when Jesus announced to the disciples that he would build his church, I don't think they had a clue what he was talking about. The only thing they could associate with was some sort of an assembly. He's going to have some special assembly of maybe people or maybe believers or who knows what he had in mind if you were a disciple then. But the point I'm making is words take on new meaning, and in doing a word study, these are the things that you're looking for. So words take on meaning, or new meaning change over time. Sixth, sometimes words can overlap 
in meaning, and we call those synonyms, so words that overlap. Uh, they might have slight differences, but they may have also meanings in common, depending on the context, they could be used almost interchangeably. If you would use that same circle illustration of a range of meaning, you would have two overlapping circles. A portion of the circle would uh, have a slightly different meaning from one word than perhaps uh, the part of the circle on the other word that does not overlap. But then you have overlapping portions of those circles where the word could be used interchangeably depending on the selection of the author. So these are the major characteristics. One more, we can describe words as connotative. In other words, more literal, you might say as opposed to denotative, in other words, words with meaning in addition to their denotative meaning, they might have a figurative meaning or a non-literal meaning. So a denotative meaning is the, or, or the connotative meaning, I've got those mixed up. A denotative meaning is a normal, literal, specific meaning. The connotative meaning is in addition and can have that non-literal or figurative meaning, depending on how the author is using it. Any questions so far? These are kind of basic characteristics of words in general. And in particular, these are the way that words work and function uh, in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. Everything clear so far? No questions? No questions. Well, determine. Good. How do we determine the meaning that is assigned by a particular author? The key is determining the context, but it's also helpful to try to determine how that word has changed over time. It's also sometimes helpful to see if there are other words that perhaps overlap with this word. And you might consider looking for that word and see how that word might differ from the word that you're studying. But the main thing that you start with in doing a word study is you want to determine the range of meaning. And how do you do that? Well, it's not complicated, but depending on the number of occurrences in the Bible, uh, you, you basically look up all of the occurrences of the Bible, and your basic tool is a concordance. So range of meaning. We're drawing that circle again. And a word may have one, two, three, four, five. I'm going to give you an example of a word. I think just in the book of Romans, the word is used different in different ways. And I think, I think I've got a list of eight or nine different ways. We'll go over that as an example. But your basic tool is a concordance. A concordance, particularly if it's more exhaustive will give you the listing of that word 
uh, throughout the Bible. And there's some basic concordances that we use in studying the English Bible. Now, I'm going to give you a procedure where you can be more precise if you can isolate and actually do a word study on the, the, the word in the original language. And you don't even have to know how to, you don't have to understand how to uh, Greek or Hebrew. If you can simply understand the word itself, so if you have a little bit of a feel for the alphabet, uh, Hebrew is a little bit more difficult, but I'll show you an example in Greek. And I would encourage you to, to follow the procedure and do word studies, particularly in the New Testament, from uh, from the Greek word that you find in, in, in the, the, the text. So I'll show you how you can determine that, how you find that word. What is that word that you want to do a word study on? Or you can simply just study the English word, and you will gain, I would think, 80-90% of what you are looking for in, term, in, in determining the range of meaning of any given word. But for more precision, I would encourage the process of utilizing the original word or in the original language. So a concordance basically has a listing of words, and I've got a copy of a very common English concordance. I think it was compiled in the 1800s. There's a corresponding one that is equally utilized or has been. Today, I guess the electronic versions are kind of overtaking these. But for a long time, and particularly when I was a, a, a relatively new believer, the two standards were Young's Concordance and Strong's Concordance. And a page in Young's looks just something like this. So let's say we're going to do a word study on the word redeem. We came across a passage, and that's the word that we want to do a word study on, and I'm going to use it as an example. And by the way, I sent you an example of a word study of the word redeem. And on it, basically, I've done a word study on two original words related to the word redeem. We'll go over that after I get through a little bit of this discussion here. Let me call you attention. If you're using Young's, Strong's is similar. It uses a a little bit different format, but basically you look up the word that you're interested in. In this case, we're studying the word redeem, and it'll give you a listing. And in this case, we have one, two, three, four on this page, and then I'm going to show you the next page. And on each of these, it's going to give you the references where that word is translated as redeemed. And if you're careful, you will see that the editors are also attempting to give you a little bit of a sense of the meaning as well. So, number one, the idea to free. And in parentheses, the editor of the Young says by avenging or repaying, the idea of repaying something. And since these are in the Old Testament, the listing is of an Old Testament word. You may not 
know the letters there, but it also gives us a transliteration. The Hebrew characters are Ga'al, and as you can see right next to it to the right, there's Ga'al, and to the right is a transliteration as we would pronounce it in English. And that word occurs in Genesis 48:16, Exodus 6:6, 6, 6, etc., several in Leviticus, Hosea, one in Hosea, one in Micah. Ga'al. At least this particular form closely related to the idea to free by avenging or re- repaying. And then you have number two, you have Ga'al again, to be freed. So a slightly different usage in Leviticus 25:49, And then number three, freedom or redemption. It's the same ga'al, except it's a different inflection there. Gwala is the Hebrew word, and we have some listings in uh, Leviticus. But I want you to notice that there's another word. So this seems to be a basic word. The the basic word, ga'al, has this idea of to redeem, to free, the idea of freedom, redemption. Uh, So we're we're trying to just mainly find these uh, where the word occurs. But notice number four. Very similar to number one, to free, but it's a different word in the Hebrew. So you have a Hebrew synonym here. To free, redeem, and it uses pada. And you have the transliteration there. And then you have a long listing of them. I don't have them all on the sheet. I'm just kind of giving you the feel. You've probably used Young's or you might have used Strong's, but you may not have noticed these little fine details. But you want to notice this because if you want to do a word study in the Hebrew, you might want to study that word ga'al. Either that or pada, depending on um, what passage you're interested in if you're in the Old Testament. Or you might do a word study on both. So it occurs 33 times in the form of ga'al, and pada occurs 42 times in the Old Testament. And if you just simply count them, you can find them. So the next page in Young's, you have number five, you have number six. And most of those are related to Pada. But notice you get down to eight. And we have, now we have New Testament listings, not too many. We have three listings of Agarazzo, all three of them in the book of Revelation, two of them in verse, chapters 14, 3 and 4. And then, uh, you have another listing, number nine. And by the way, to acquire at the forum or to buy at the forum. And again, it has the Greek word, and then to the right, it'll have the transliteration as to how you would pronounce it, agorazo, long O. Then number nine, to acquire out of the forum, ex-agorazo, and similarly, you have the transliteration there. And Young's only lists a few of them, but let's say we are desiring to study, in fact, we're studying Galatians, let's say, and in Galatians 3.13, we're studying that paragraph, and we come across, Young's even gives you a little bit of the the verse there, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse, 
And by the way, both Young's and Strong's are based on the King James Version. So the language is a little bit different from some of the more modern versions of our of our uh, English translations. And there's the word redeemed. That's the word that we're studying. And the context that we're studying, we're studying the paragraph that contains 3.13 in the book of Galatians. That's where we're most interested in. But now I've kind of found the word exagorazo right out of Young's. Strong's will do the very same thing. It'll, it'll give, it'll identify the very Greek word that you find in that particular context. So now, once you know the Greek word, now you can look it up if you can have access to another tool. But before I get to that, let's summarize what we've kind of looked at here. Just from Young's, and from Young's Concordance, we notice that there's two major words that are translated to redeem. Ga'al and pada. Now, the lettering on the left-hand side of the slide there may be totally foreign to you, but at least you can see how they are pronounced when they're transliterated into English to the right. Now, you might be more familiar with the Greek words. There's agorazo, and then the transliteration to the right. We find out there's two words in the New Testament. And the other one is ex-agorazo. It's pretty much the same word with a prefix before it. Ex, ex-agorazo. So, those are the words. Now, because we're studying Galatians, we're going to focus on exagorazo, and we want to do a word study on it, and we want to be as precise as we can. So we're going to focus on all of the occurrences that we can find of exagorazo. Now, once you know what either the Hebrew or the Greek words are that you are looking for, there's a very handy tool. I think this one was compiled also in the 1800s that, that uh, students have used. It's called Englishman's either Greek Concordance or Englishman's Hebrew and called the Concordance. And notice they're fairly thick books. And I've used these for years up until, oh, I don't know, last 10 years when I've been using more electronic means to do word studies, but these are still standards. The advantage of both of these is you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew. All you need to know is the particular word, so if you can figure out the lettering, either in the Hebrew or in the Greek, now you can look it up in the Englishman's Greek Concordance, and it's called Englishman's not because it is in English, Everything's in English except that one particular word that you want to find, and it's in alphabetical order. Englishman is the name of the compiler, and I think he worked in the 1800s. I don't have all the background and history on that. But that's a tool that I've utilized, and you can see I've taped it up and used it quite extensively. I don't use it as much anymore, but... Uh, 
That is a way of looking up that particular word. And a page in Englishman looks much like Young's or Strong's. It doesn't give you as much data. And by the way, it's also based on the King James Version. But now, let's say you were going to do Exagoranzo, and we're going to do Agoranzo as well. We're going to do both of them, by the way, and I I give both of them on the, uh, the sheet, and there's a reason. I'll explain that in a moment. But here's what Agoranzo looks like, and here's the the complete listing. All 31 times are listed right there. So that's what the page looks like, and obviously it goes down to the bottom of the column and then starts at the top of the other column. Then you have a line that breaks it, and now you have the next word, which is not related to what we're studying. So I have now captured every listing in the New Testament of the word agorazo. This is the word related to exagorazo. I could show you the same sheet on exagorazo. It would look very similar. That's the one that we're going to concentrate on, but I give you this one because it has more listings on it, uh, just so you see what it looks like. It's in English, so the only thing you need to know is the Greek word, and you can look it up alphabetically. Does that make sense? Or have I thoroughly confused you so far in the process? <laughs> makes sense. Good. Are you going to talk about Go ahead. using Lagos? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. Right. Yeah, we'll get to that next. I'm just giving you the standard tools that are available. And if you've got a church library, it may have these two books. Uh, I don't know that I'd buy them. They're relatively expensive. They were expensive when I bought my copies last century, several years ago. Uh, but because of the availability of these electronic tools, uh, you may not need them, but I, I still want you to be aware of them, and you might be able to use them as well. But if you have a tool, I don't know how all of the electronic tools, but there are several available. One of the better known, and Schaefer recommends, in fact, I think it's required for those that are seeking a degree is you utilize Lagos. So let me walk you through how you would do a Lagos search. And what we're simply doing is we're trying to find all of the listings. And now that I know the particular Greek word, I can I can look it up in Lagos and it'll give me the same listing. It might vary slightly sometimes due to textual uh, issues and and the difference between uh, um, the text that the King James is, uh, the majority text that the King James is based on or the uh, authorized, or no, uh, what's the name of it? Uh, Textus Receptus. There's a difference in texts that are utilized in the translations of some of the modern ones. Uh, so there's slight differences, but in general, they'll be almost identical. There won't be too much difference. Not enough that's going to mess up your word study here. So I've got the steps here, and if you don't write them all down, uh, you can 
come back and look it up on uh, the PowerPoint slides or re- review the lecture. But number one, you go to the guides tab, and I'm going to walk you through this. We'll go to the Lagos program in a moment here. Let me just give you the first two, and then I'll walk you through that stage. So you go to the Laga, or, or obviously open it up, go to the Guides tab. I'll show you where that's located. And you're going to want to click on Exegetical Guide. Secondly, we're going to enter a passage in that Exegetical Guide. So let me go to Lagos over here. What happened to it? Here it is. Okay, if you open up kind of a blank Lagos page, here's the guides. Can you see that? See my cursor here? You click on the guides, and you have different things that you can select. You can go do a study on a passage. And I mentioned click on the exegetical guide. That's where we're going to go. Now, another way of doing word studies, you can go to the words, uh, Bible word study guide. But it's going to be like going to Young's or Strong's. You're going to be looking at simply the English word. That's why I'm going to take you to the exegetical guide so that you can go to the Greek word itself. And then it's got these other guides as well, topic guide, where you can enter topics, sermon starter guide, etc. But we're going to go to the exegetical guide. And we're going to enter the passage, and I've already got it entered. So Galatians 3.13, that's where the word occurs. So I'm going to click on Galatians 3.13. Following so far, we're in the exegetical guide. We're going to the very passage that we're interested in. Now, if you're studying a whole paragraph, you can put the whole paragraph in there, and it'll show your whole paragraph. And then you can break it down and go to the individual parts. But I've simply entered Galatians 3.13. Now, let me go back. Oops, the other way. And where are we here? So we entered the passage. Thirdly, we're going to go to the part of the guide that gives us word by word, and we're going to click on the term. So let's do that. So I'm going down this list here, and I go to this word by word. It might show up this way where it's not opened, but just go down here and you can open it. Now it's going to give you your passage. So I'm going to scroll down a little bit so we can see the passage. And if you understand Greek, you have the Greek text here. That's why it's an exegetical guide. But if you don't know Greek, it gives you the English here. So here's Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 
for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So there's the entire verse. Now, if you set up your Lagos, you can utilize different translations. I've got mine set up to New American Standard Bible there, as you can see, the 95, 1995 version there. So you can set it up on a different translation depending on what you use. You can also set uh, set it, set your Lagos to whatever New Testament text you want as well. And I've got the NA, well, let's see, that's, no, that's not the text. That's New American Standard. Uh, where is it? Well, anyway, you can set it up. I'll let you figure that out on your own. But once, in fact, it'll have a default setting as well. You can just use it to learn how to change it. So if you know the Greek word, you can click on it. I'm not going to click on it. But there's the word, exegorasen. So it's inflected. Past tense. But if you're using the English, you can just click on this, and it's going to take you to the word itself. I'm going to click on it. Just did. And here's the word. Here's exegorasen, and it's got a transliteration. The next thing you're going to do is you're going to click on the word right underneath it. This is the stem, or this is the basic word. I'm going to click on it, but let me go back to my steps here. So I clicked on the term. Now I'm going to click on the root word or the stem under the term. So I'm going to go over there and click on it. And number five, it's going to give me a circle. And I'm going to click on the parts of the circle. And I'll show you that in a moment. And it's going to give me the occurrences of the word that shows right underneath it or beneath it. So those are your steps. Everyone following so far? So back to Lagos. You got it? Somebody started to say something? No, I just said yes, yes, be following. Okay. Do you use Lagos, Andrea? You know, um, I actually downloaded it on the iPad, mm-hmm. so, and I didn't have a chance to explore how much is there. Yeah, there, but, there's a lot there. But after seeing this... <laughs> yeah, it's a little complicated, but if you can get this down, at least it will get you. Uh what I'm doing now is I'm just trying to find Exagorazzo, and I'm going to click on the root or the stem uh, because it's going to give it to me. So I'm going to click on it, and it gives me the circle. And what the circle is telling me, the word can be translated in English, redeem, or redeemed, plural, or not plural. Uh, uh, my mind went blank. Past tense. Past tense. There you go. 
or making the most of something interesting. Now, the circle kind of gives you the a little bit of the way the word is translated. It's giving you just a translation. It's not giving you necessarily meaning, although it's got meaning. But if you click on, let's say, the blue, as I said on the steps, underneath it, it tells me that it's translated redeem two times out of four. You remember when we looked at Young's, we found out that it's only used four times. So half of them, and here's your Galatians 3.13 passage. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, etc. It's also in Galatians 4, verse 5. But now you have two of the usages of exagorazo. If you want the other two, click on the red now. I'm going to click on it, and it's going to give you the other. So now we have all four. It also occurs in Ephesians 5.16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Colossians 4.5, conduct yourself with wisdom toward others, making the most of the opportunity. And that's basically what we have here as part of the circle. Okay? Now, because the word is only used four times, and we have two somewhat different, diverse ways that it's used, um, I I don't have a real good feel for the meaning of the word. I'm, I'm, I'm still a little fuzzy. Uh, that's why I noticed that uh, the word also, there's a word very similar to it, agarazzo. So because it's only used four times, and I want a broader exposure to this word group, you could say, uh, I want to do a word study not only on exagorazzo, but I also want to do a word study on agorazzo. But once you've found the word underneath it, you're going to find kind of the whole word group and other ways that word may appear. It'll be a different word, but it'll still have some relationship to this idea of redeem or redeeming, or it's going to tell me something about a related meaning. So in this case, because it only occurs four times, I'm going to want to broaden my study, and I'm going to extend it and study Agarazzo. So I'm going to click on this word here. There's Agarazzo. It's going to be right underneath here. If I wanted to, I could study Agora as well, or Agoreas. I could study that one as well. But I noticed that this was the other basic word. There was Agorazzo and there was Exagorazzo, so I'm going to do a word study on it as well. So I found four usages, and now you can transfer these to a Word document if you want, or you can jot them down, and because these are the ones you're going to look up in a concordance, or you can do it electronically. But now, here's another circle with agarazzo at the center, 
with the basic idea to buy or to purchase. And we have all these different ways that it's translated. And I've got it set for New American Standard. See, New American Standard there. So New American Standard translates it by buying, buys, spend, selling, purchase, purchased, bought. So to find where it occurs, I'm going to click on the one where it occurs most frequently. So let's click on it. And underneath it is going to have, it's going to give 14 out of 30 usages. And it has this idea of to buy. To buy something. So now I know where it occurs in that sense. So I can go all the way down. I can look all of these up to get the context and see what it's talking about in terms of buying. And I've looked up 14 of them, so there's still 16 left. So I'm going to look up these. Now I've got nine more, and I've got the listing of them underneath it. There's all of the usages where it's translated bot, and it highlights it for you so you can see where it occurs. Everybody following? Then you just keep going, and all I'm doing is now I'm recording all of these, and however works best for you. Usually I pull all of these out first, and then I categorize them after I have them isolated, uh, or I look them up. But I can keep going, and now there's four... Usages where New American Standard translates it, translates it purchase, four of the 30. And then here we have uh, selling, two of the 30. And because of the size, I could almost guess that it's used one time in the sense of spend. And there it is, Mark 637. Does that make sense? Yes, makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. So now what we've done is we've done the concordance search. Now I have all of the usages of agorazo, and I have all of the usages of ex agorazo. Now the one I'm interested in is that Galatians one, but I'm, I want to get the range of meaning here. That's what I'm looking for. So. What we're doing, oops, wrong direction, is we're basically doing the same thing as what we did when we went to the concordance. So the next stage that we want to do, we're determining the range of meaning. We found all of the usages in the concordance. Now we want to do like what we did with trunk, number one, trunk of a car, number two, uh, trunk of an elephant, number three, trunk of a tree, etc. Now what we want to do is classify the different ways that this word can be used. Now the translation may help you, just the way New American Standard translates it, and as you notice, it translated agorazo in different ways, and ex agorazo, there were two ways that it was translated. Two different ways. So now I want to classify them. So I'm going to have one, two, three, four. And by the way, I'm going to ask you a question. 
So get ready to answer. Um, maybe I'll pick on somebody. How about you, Steve? Uh, does a dictionary, this is a yes and no question. Does a dictionary give you meanings of words? Yes or no? You're going to say yes. You're going to say yes. Okay, I'm going to ask the same question to Andrea. Does a dictionary give you meanings of words? Do you agree with Steve? No, I said no, it doesn't. Okay, so there's a disagreement here. The rest of you, who wants to side with uh, Andrea and who wants to side with Steve? Dane, are you there? Does a dictionary yeah. give you meanings of words? Yes or no? Uh, I think yes. Okay. Got somebody on your side there, Mark? Or Steve, rather. You got somebody on your side, Steve. Mark? I'll say no. Ah, we're divided in class here. You're going to agree with Andrea. Eric? Do we get to defend our answers? (laughs) No. Uh, Eric, you're the tiebreaker. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I, I would... I would say no, depending on how you, I mean it. Okay. The denotation, but not how it's used in different senses. Okay, so you agree with Andrea. Uh, well, let's give Barb a chance. <laughs> she should know the meaning, though, or the answer, rather. I'm going to say no. Well, Barb is correct, because she's taken the course. Andrea is correct, so those of you that believed or listened to Andrea... Uh, a dictionary, technically speaking, doesn't give you definitions of words. A dictionary will give you the usage of words or the range of meaning. It's up to you to select from the dictionary the particular meaning of the word that's used in the particular context that you're interested in. So Andrea is in fact correct and uh, dictionaries give range of meaning not meaning per se. You determine which of the listings in a dictionary is the meaning of the word in question. So another thing that you want to do is look up the meaning in a either an English dictionary But if you're doing a Greek word study and you have access to a Greek lexicon, then you can do that as well. And all you're trying to do is you're you're trying to see how this word can possibly be used. Now, when you go to an English dictionary, you may find some meanings that uh, you don't find in the Bible. In other words, it may have, let's say, five meanings, and there's only four of them that occur in, uh, in this case, in the New Testament. And or, you might find that the Bible uses a word that uh, we don't use that word in that sense in, in English. But at least it's giving you a feel for this range of meaning and kind of 
because we, we're working in English, so we need to understand how that word is used in our language and see whether or not it's used in that same way in the Greek text or in the English text of the, of the Bible. So we're just making a comparison here. Now, the lexicon, the compilers of a lexicon or the authors or editors, what they have done is they have researched how that word is used in a particular time frame. The standard lexicon that we use in Greek exegesis is commonly referred to as Arnton Gingrich or BDAG. Bauer, what's the other word? I can't remember. Arkin Gingrich. Uh, that's kind of the standard for Koine Greek. In other words, Greek of uh, the New Testament time frame. There are other lexicons, like for the classical period of Greek. And remember, words sometimes change over time or acquire meaning over time. And sometimes words are used differently in the classical period as they're used in the Koine. So also later and modern Greek, for example, there's words may be different as well. So it's good to kind of get this feel by going to a lexicon. So let's go over that example that I gave you. Well, first of all, let me, let me do this first. Let's continue through the process. So, once we've classified and we've kind of compared the listing that we've got with how a lexicon or a dictionary lists, see how theirs compares. Uh, it may be different because we may not use a word in the same way the Bible does or vice versa. But at least I'm becoming aware of of how a word is used in the Bible, and that's what I'm really narrowing in on. I want to understand how the author used that word, but I need to know the range of meaning first. So once I've determined the range of meaning, now I want to see how that word is used in the particular context that I'm studying, that particular passage. And in this case, what is the meaning of that word in Galatians 3.13. That's what I'm after. But I need to know the possibilities first. That's the range of meaning. And now I'm going to select one if I can, if I, if it's clear. Sometimes it's not clear. And now I think I have a better feel for how Paul is using it in this context in Galatians 3.13. Now I have essentially uh, completed my word study. Sometimes it's also helpful to, remember we talked about circles of context. Well, you might do the same thing in terms of how is this word used in these different circles of context? Does Paul use this word in the same way everywhere that he writes? Does he use the word in the same way in Galatians as he does in Ephesians or Ephesians as as passage we're studying or Romans or whatever book? Or you might even isolate the circle of 
well, Galatians isn't a prison epistle, but yeah, the writings of Paul. Um, and then you might take the next circle, the, the letters that would include the letters of Peter, the letters of John, that same word. Maybe John doesn't use it at all. Uh, but you can do that sort of thing as well to see how that word might be different as well. Does Jesus use that word in a different sense or a sense that is within that range of meaning? Now, if you did a word study, you've encountered the word as it occurs in the Gospels as well. So you've already looked at the range there, but you're just thinking through now because you want to make sure that you are accurate in coming to the meaning in the particular context. And now you are focusing in, okay, I'm confident that Paul is using the word in this particular way in Galatians 3.13. That completes your word study, at least your work. But we want to verify it. So now we can go to other books to, to give us more confidence that we have isolated the proper word. And there are some books that are devoted uh, simply to word studies. Vines, Expository Dictionary. Uh, just a book of word studies. And maybe Vines did a word study on Redeem. Look it up there. Compare what he did with your work. And you'll find out that your work might be even better than his. Who knows? If you were careful. Uh, there's other... Word study books like that. You can go to commentaries. Uh, you can look the word up in a Bible dictionary. Sometimes a Bible dictionary will give you basically the results of a word study or a Bible encyclopedia. But you want to take the next step to kind of verify your work. So that's the process. That is how you do a word study. And we've pretty much come to our break time. So this is probably a good place to take a break. When we come back, We'll look at a couple of examples, and if we uh, get through all of that, then we'll go into the next area, or at least get started on the next area. Any questions on anything that we've looked at so far? No questions. No questions. Hopefully it'll come together when we look at the example. Let's go ahead and take about a six to ten minute break and come back and finish for today. Well, last hour I gave you the procedure for doing a word study. And the most time-consuming part is determining the range of meaning. And it's especially time-consuming if you have a word that occurs many, many times. And there are some words in the Bible that uh, occur thousands of times. In fact, uh, oh, a few years ago, I did a word study on a word that occurs, I think, a little over 5,000 times in the Old Testament. And I obviously limited it to the Old Testament because I was looking for something in particular. There was a controversy, and I wanted to make sure I looked at every usage. So 
That took a lot of time, obviously, to look up 5,000 passages. In some cases, uh, the word is used only one time. So, if it only occurs one time, basically, you can't develop a range of meaning. So, you are kind of limited to the resources that you have, like lexicons, Bible dictionaries, and that sort of thing. When a word does not occur very frequently, I selected a word as an example that um, doesn't have a lot of occurrences, but there's enough to kind of give us a feel for how to do a word study. I I send it off to you so you uh, have a copy of it, and I'd like to go over it so that you can just kind of see what I did. And... Uh, It's the word redeem that I kind of used as an example as we were going through the process as well. So, let me see if I can find it. Trying to do what Barb showed me to do. Let me go to the word. Okay, we said that uh, we were going to do a word study on the word redeem. And even though I've got agorazo at the top, mainly because it occurs more frequently than exagorazo, so I'm going to use this. And by the way, once you have developed a range of meaning for a word, once you've done a word study, you don't have to do it again. And that's the reason I've titled this one to redeem, and I used agorazo there instead of exagorazo. Because uh, if you encounter that word again, you've already done all this work, and all you have to do now is just see how that word is used in the particular context that you are studying at that time, which would be a different context. So once you do all this work, you want to preserve it, obviously. And that's essentially what I've done on the example that I that I sent you. So we were studying in Galatians 3:13, or imagine in an, our imagination we were, and we encountered the word agorazo. But we because well we encountered the word exagorazo, and because it's only used four times. It's hard to come up with a range of meaning and to get a good feel for how that word is used. So we we took the time to also look up the word exagorazo because they're very, very similar. And in some ways they're synonyms, except they have some slight differences. So we want to see maybe how they might be different. Now, when I walked you through the Lagos procedure there, we noticed that there was another word, agora, and if you wanted to even study it, you would find that the agora in that first century culture was essentially the marketplace, was the shopping center, you might say, or the Walmart, or whatever whatever shopping area is most common in your area. So, agora related to agorazo, and 
an exagorazo has some relationship or some way, some connection with a marketplace. So we wanted to do a word study on both those words to kind of get that broader feeling. So we studied, we were going to study agorazo, that's A here. And we looked up all the usages of eggs agorazo and we found two usages. Occurs four times in the New Testament. I also noticed an observation, it's only used by Paul. So it occurs in the Galatians 3.13 passage, Galatians 4.5, Ephesians 5.16, Colossians 4.5. And we got that from not only Lagos, but you could have found all of these also from Strong's and um, Young's. <clears throat> so here's the two usages. It, In some contexts, it refers to Christ's redemption. So it's used in a theological sense for Christ's redemption and Galatians 4, 5, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And if you study the context, you can uh, understand this theological redemption of Christ. We also saw that it's used in a very different way, making the most of time or opportunity, the Ephesians 5.16, making the most of your time. And in that same context, it kind of has that idea of making the most of your time, just as it's translated. Nothing peculiar there. Similarly in Colossians, except it's speaking instead of time, opportunity. So I've broken it down, making the most of time or opportunity. So now I've classified it one and two, two different senses. Now I'm going to come back to Galatians 3.13 because that's the one I'm interested in, but I'm still developing the range of meaning. So now we want to see how, how might it be used in uh, the word agorazo. In other words, how what's the range of meaning of agorazo? And if we did a word study on it, uh, I noted it occurs 31 times in the New Testament. And by the way, if you notice the Lagos, it only gave us 30. That's the difference between the Englishman's and uh, Lagos. And again, the difference is between the King James Version and uh, New American Standard Version and the texts behind them. Well, I noticed it's used in a very literal, everyday sense, in a literal, commercial sense, related to the marketplace, like I said. In the Gospels, it's used 21 times, and it's always, in the Gospel, used in this literal sense. So Jesus uses it. It's used in other contexts, apart from Jesus. So I've just kind of categorized it, and I've probably gone into more detail than we need to, but I do it just to illustrate It's not only used in this literal commercial sense to buy something. This is kind of the Walmart sense where you are going to go buy a product. And I just broke it down into the different products that could be bought. And I gave uh, the verse here so that I kind of could see uh, where it's used. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sent the disciples, uh, so send the multitudes away that they may go by, or he's going to send the the multitudes here, 
So send the multitudes away. The disciples are speaking. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But it's in the context just before Jesus is going to feed the 5,000. And you have the parallel passages in Mark and Luke, so I didn't include them. And it actually, the same miracle occurs also in John. So the synoptics in John, similar phraseology, same word, and I've got it highlighted or bolded here, to buy, and in this case, buying of food. Uh, the woman at the well also involves the buying of food. This is in a literal commercial sense. Passover, buy the things that we have need of for the feast. That's Jesus' instruction to the disciples. Buying of food. It's used of buying land. Matthew 13, Luke 14. Buying oxen in the parable of the pearl. Buying of a... Let's see. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. So he bought the pearl, buying oil, sword, etc. So different products. That's kind of the Walmart sense, a literal sense. Uh, I've got a general category where the material is not specified, just more in general. But then I see a second category or a second sense. To buy in a figurative sense, not a literal sense. So all of these are literal. Here's a figurative sense. In Revelation 3.18, Jesus in, uh, I think, is that the church at Thyatira? I can't remember. One of the churches. Yeah, no, Laodicea. Jesus to the church in Laodicea. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich, etc. The verse goes on. I didn't include the whole verse. But he's using it. He's not selling. He's not a merchant of gold here. Uh, I think he's speaking more metaphorically, figuratively. But he's including this idea of buying something. And the word to buy is used in this more figurative sense. And then, the same agorazo, I find a third category. To purchase, or to redeem, or with the idea of buying out of something, or purchasing back something. It's not only used in this figurative sense, but I I see a distinction between two and three. Just kind of a broad figurative sense, but here a more specific non-literal sense, we could call it a theological sense. Let's see, did I press the record? Yeah, okay. Um, Let's see, so more of a theological sense, believers bought by Christ, and now his slaves, I get that from the context, So we have a 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now if you study the context, you realize that when Jesus died on the cross, this is why this is the theological sense, there's a spiritual thing that's happening here. Jesus on the cross paid something. There's a price. And we've been bought by a price. 
1 Corinthians 7.23, you are bought with a price again, very similar. Do not become slaves of men. There's where I kind of get this idea. We are owned by someone else, so we are not to revert back to slavery of men. So believers bought by Christ and now his slaves. Uh, another reference to believers, Revelation 5.9, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals for thou. This is the lamb in that context, or Jesus. For thou was slain and did purchase the buying of something. But it's in a theological sense. Purchase for God. Here's the price, thy blood. That's probably metaphorical as well, referring to his death. With thy blood, you purchased men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Referring to the cross. So it's a purchase of some sort. A payment. The crucifixion is a payment. And it carries this idea of redemption. Now this is Agarazzo, but now we're getting closer to this Exagorazzo idea. And I kind of break it down into sub subcategories here, B and C, false teachers, even denying the master who bought them. So I distinguish believers being bought, but the death of Christ bought these false teachers as well, which may not be, they may not be believers. In fact, they're probably not. Then a specific reference to the 144,000 during the Great Tribulation, Revelation 14, 3, 3, 3 through 4, and referring to the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These had been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So I come to the conclusion that uh, the word agarazzo is used in its everyday sense. Remember I said every theological term has some everyday idea or kind of literal sense. And it just basically has the idea to buy something. So we would probably expect that ex agarazzo, which is the same word with a preposition preceding it, probably has a similar idea. So I'm kind of reinforcing the work that I did there. But it's also used in a non-literal sense, and in this case, a just a figurative sense without any theological necessarily connotation. And then, very clearly, a theological sense referring to what Christ accomplished on the cross on behalf of sinners, in reference to believers, in reference to false teachers, and in reference to a new group of believers that will be raised up during the Great Tribulation. So it has this theological sense of redemption. So redemption has behind it this idea of paying a price, and you might even extend it, like to the slave market, And if you went further and studied the classical usage, the way that the word was used in classical time, and there's a uh, dictionary that or a lexicon that you can utilize to find how it's used in that period of time, you're going to see it's related to the slave market. And I think that idea might be carried over into the uh, usage of the word agorazo in the first century as well. 
and the the theological sense uh, probably implies this purchased out of bondage as slaves, and now we are owned by someone else because the price has been paid. So now I have kind of refined my understanding of eggs agorazo. And if I've encountered, if I've done a lot of word studies, I'm, I might have noticed, if this is the first time, you wouldn't notice, but oftentimes Greek words, when you attach a preposition to it, like we have here, this is the preposition ek. Uh, it's spelled a little bit differently because of the attachment there, but we have a preposition that has the idea of out of something or from something. So ex agarazzo might add this idea of being purchased out of something. Or it also intensifies the word. And in some cases, it might have this intensified idea of to purchase completely or totally in, in that sense as well. And possibly both ideas are here as well. So Galatians 3.13, that's what we're focusing in on. Now that we've kind of discerned the range of meaning of both the related word and the base word, basically agorazo and exagorazo, uh, now we can look it up in a lexicon. And I've just listed what Bauer, Art, and Gingrich lists or BDAG, as some people reference it, for agorazo, to buy, to purchase, and notice it notes it as a literal sense, or to buy, acquire a property. It doesn't give the theological sense. So our word study actually goes somewhat beyond uh, the, the Greek lexicon. And then I look it up, the... The word ex agorazo in Martin Gingrich, I abbreviated A and G. Put the, the page number in case I want to go back to it, find it easily. Ex agorazo, page 271. Uh, two senses, to redeem, to deliver, to make the most of time. We discovered both of those two ways that it's used. And we also, from Strong's or Young's, we also saw that there's other words that have this redemptive idea, this idea of buying out of bondage. One of them, lutrao, we didn't look it up, but if we wanted to do a word study on it, that would have been a synonym that we could have done a word study on as well. So there are other related terms in the New Testament, and we would have noticed that there are also other words in the Old Testament. So we've pretty much completed the range of meaning from the usage, in other words, how the word is used, range of meaning, and then secondly, second Roman numeral, the lexicon. Now this is part of the verifying process as well. It confirms some of the work that we've done, but it also shows that uh, we we went a little further in our work. So our work is probably better than the editors of Art and Gingrich. So the last stage here is how is this word used in the context? Because this is the passage that we were studying. So we go down to Galatians 3.13, and we see it's used in this 
theological sense and putting all of the thought that we gave gave to it from the range of meaning. It probably refers to believers bought by Christ with the price of his death. And now we belong to him as his slaves, we could even say. So that's how I would uh, understand what Paul intended in Galatians 3.13. You see how I got there? Yeah, very well done, Ray. Thank you. So, in the assignment, your assignment now, in assignment number four, there's two parts to it. The first part is to ask and list interpretive questions from Ephesians 5, 7 through 14. And remember, I gave you the three major kinds of questions, definitive, rational, implicational. You might refer to your notes there. So all I'm asking you to do is ask five definitive questions of anything in there relating to terms or even phrases. Uh, Similarly, three rational questions and then two implicational questions. Pretty straightforward. I don't think... Too many things in there that are not easily discerned. But the major part here, and this will take you the most of the time, is to do a word study from the New Testament. New Testament only, so we're going to limit it, so you don't have to deal with the Old Testament. And do it on either the English term walk, as translated in the New American Standard. And if you want to simply go find... The usages in Young's or Strong's, you can do that. And the context is Ephesians 5.8, so you want to isolate and find the meaning in that context. In other words, how is Paul using it in Ephesians 5.8? Now, you can also look up the Greek word peripateo and do a, a word study on it. That would be more more precise in terms of where that word is used. And it may be translated differently than walk in some contexts. Or if uh, you have another term in mind, uh, I'm open to uh, letting you do another term if you're just interested in doing something. But I've selected a word that occurs relatively frequently that you can clearly come up with different categories of how the word is used, a range of meaning, and then you narrow it down to how Paul is using it in Ephesians 5.8. I'm not going to grade you on any conclusions or necessarily conclusions. I'm going to grade more on the, the procedure. How did you get there? And I think if you use sound procedures, all of you will come to the same basic conclusion. Any questions on that? Sorry, I don't think I have a question on the assignment, but I want to go back to your example for just a minute. Sure. Uh, where you, on part three, where you go the meaning and the context. So you kind of, it looks like you kind of took some ideas from the root word agalazo. Yes. When you said the price of his death and now his slaves, you, you took the property 
the buying and acquisition of property. Yeah. And kind of folded that into the uh, exagorazo definitions or uses. Yeah. Come up with what you, it's kind of like an expanded theological sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I, I, I think inherent, the thought powder, uh, process here is if we had, say, 30 usages of eggs agarazzo, I'm almost thinking that somewhere in there you're going to get this whole balance as well. But because it's so limited, I'm, a little bit depending my meaning partly on the uh, the root word as well. Right. Now, and in that interpretive conclusion, I guess that's what that is, kind of. Yes. Uh, you're also probably taking into account other passages. Um, not necessarily. I'm I'm basing okay. it on word study. Okay. But you know it's consistent with other passages. Yeah, yeah, it'd be consistent, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, and, and by the way, uh, I started to mention that when you have an abundance of words, now you can be a little bit more precise in determining the range of meaning. But when it, the word only occurs four times, you're a little bit more limited, so you want to go a little bit beyond that word itself, and that's what I've done. Uh, and you have to really do that when the word only occurs one time, because you, you, you can't develop a range of meaning, in the Bible at least. So now you try to go to more of the lexicons. How is it used in the classical period? You could even see if you can find how the word is used in the Old Testament. You might need to do that. Or <laughs> is when when you add that part on, is that somewhat of a connotation or I'm not sure I understand the difference between connotation and meaning and context. Well, uh, that distinguishes more literal, non-literal. In other words, a word beyond the literal sense, the connotative sense. Okay. And here's an example. The denotative meaning of uh, exagorazzo and agorazzo has this idea of buying something. Now, exagorazzo doesn't give you any examples of a literal sense, but agorazzo very definitely does. In fact, the majority of them are in that Walmart sense, the thing okay. in the market. That's the denotative meaning. The connotative meaning has this idea of to buy in the sense of redeeming, or redeeming has that sense of buying something in a theological, non-literal sense. Okay, so it is okay to say that that's a connotative meaning. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because it is. Yeah. That's what I thought. So, just checking. Yeah, and there's no need to do any... Et- and etymology on this word if you want to do a little bit because remember it's got limitations and you want to be careful the times that you might use etymology to see if that's helpful is words that occur only a few times now if you only had exagorazzo and you didn't have agorazzo then maybe etymology might help 
because it would show you that the word is made up of ek and agorazo and put together, and that might be helpful. But whenever you use etymology, and whenever you just have a few usages, your conclusions are a little bit more tentative. But when you have 100, 200 usages, then you can be more conclusive and have more confidence in the conclusions you come to. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. Yeah, so it, it varies from word to word. Okay, let's, uh, let's do another example. And in this example, what I'd like to do is kind of walk you through it again, walk you through the process. And let's do a word study on namas. That's the Greek word for law. And we're going to skip to the stage that we already have done the search on the concordance, whether it be Young's or Strong's or we've gone to Lagos. But I've got all of the usages and I've got them all listed or I've got them all on a sheet of paper. And now I'm going to sort through them and categorize the, the different way the word law can be used. And we're going to limit it, in this case, to the New Testament. If we wanted to do an Old Testament, then we could expand and go in that direction as well. But in this example, let's limit it to the New Testament. And we're going to look up every usage, well, theoretically or in our imagination, we're going to look up every usage of namas. And let's say that we started in the Gospels, because we came up with a list, and they're usually listed canonically in in all of the search means, whether it be Lagos or uh, uh, Young's or Strong's. You'll have them listed by the order of the books of the Bible. So we've already gone through the Gospels, let's say. So we're we're kind of working our way. We've gone through the four Gospels, we've gone through the book of Acts, and we've already come up with some categories. So let's kind of jump into the middle of our word study, and let me ask you, how might you think, I mean, just imagining how that word, just from your background and your knowledge today, uh, what categories might you have already come up with? What what might be some of the usages of the word law or namas? Can you think of a couple? Well, there's the literal law, the Mosaic law. Okay. That would be and one. Probably there are some references that uh, in the Gospels, in particular Jesus, probably is referring to the Mosaic law. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Uh, the law of Christ, the spiritual, something to refer to the spiritual law. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know. Um, does that occur in the Gospels? Well, no. Well, probably not in the Gospels. You're limited to the Gospels right now, right? Okay, the Mosaic law, I think very definitely. Can you think of anything else, perhaps? Uh, the Pharisaic law. 
the oral traditions. Okay, yeah, that might be a good usage. Yeah. Roman law. Um, yeah, I think so. That's possible as well. Yeah. Uh, there are some clear references, I think, in the Gospels to the first five books. In other words, the law and the prophets, where Jesus is referring to the Pentateuch. When he says the law, he's referring to the first five books. And when he says the prophets, he's referring to the rest of the Old Testament. So I think in some context we might find that little phrase to refer to the Pentateuch. And if you find some that are referring to the Pentateuch, um, you might have more specific, the Mosaic Covenant. I think you can find that in the Gospels. And you might even find uh, some references that Jesus makes to the law in reference to the Old Testament in general. Okay, so we've already probably have these categories and probably a couple of the others that you mentioned as well. And I've got, I think, some of those on this list here, but I've come up with a list here. But now we jump into the book of Romans. So we already have a few categories. And let's go to yeah, 321. And I kind of give away how it's probably used there, because we already used the example in it. Notice what it says in 321. But now, apart from the law, the right, now it occurs there one time, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the, we have that phrase that I mentioned, the law and the prophets. So the second usage in Romans 3.21 probably is a reference to the Pentateuch by Paul. What about the one before? Now, apart from the law, anyone want to make a stab at it? And by the way, it occurs in 20 as well, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's pretty broad there. Uh, I, the legal system, perhaps, first usage there, the law of righteousness. From the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Yeah, uh, it might be the Mosaic or the Old Testament in general. Very broad, I think. Uh, the reason I come to that conclusion, and including in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And if you notice the context... Starting in verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And now we have a series of quotations, 10 through 18, that proves what Paul has been saying uh, at the beginning of chapter 3 through verse 9. So he's supporting his argument from the 
these passages, and if you look at these passages, most of them are from the Psalms, but I think there's a couple from Isaiah, or at least one from Isaiah. So I think when he gets to verse 19, when he says, now we know that whatever the law says, because he's just been quoting from the law, I think he's talking about the Old Testament. And I don't think he changes, I don't see anything different in verse 20, where he uses the word again a few times, and even in verse 21, the first usage, uh, but now apart from the law, which he's been talking about throughout, I think he's still referring to the Old Testament in general, because that's what he has just been quoted. And the only change comes when he adds the little word, Witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now he's kind of summarizing. There's the total Old Testament, but he's breaking it down into two parts. The Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament. That makes sense? So I would put the last usage in verse 21 as a reference to the Pentateuch, because that's pretty consistent in the Gospels. But 19 through 21, the first usage in 21... I think it's referring to the Old Testament in general. Now let's backtrack and notice in chapter 2, verse 20. I think if you study the context, uh, let's see, he's speaking to a Jewish mindset here. Verse 20, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, Having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of the truth. Now, you could debate, it It could be the Old Testament in general, it could be the Pentateuch, or it could be the Mosaic Covenant. But if you study the whole context, more than likely he's talking about the covenant itself. Or at least I've come to that conclusion. And it's supported in verse 23, you who boast in the covenant, in the the law, through your breaking the law. There you go. There's the covenant. The breaking of stipulations of the law. That's the Mosaic covenant. So, right, when we're doing a word study to come up with the meaning. Yeah. So, we do go back to the context. And well, that, no, context determines meaning. I mean, yes, yes. That's how we're coming up with these categories. That's how I came up in 321. See, I'm walking you through the thought process. The last usage of law in 321, because he attaches it with the prophets, we've already seen that phrase over and over and over in the Gospels, Jesus using it to distinguish the, the first five books of the or the Old Testament, and then the rest of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus breaks it down into three parts in other places, but the word namas in that context would still refer to the first five books, or we call that the Pentateuch. Now, it's the context that I'm deriving these categories. So, so I wanna, I, one of the questions I've got is the example that you gave us uh, on the first one with Agorazzo and Ex-Agorazzo. Um, do we need to explain how we came up to that determination from the context? Because you were kind of, you just kind of summarized it. 
Yes, I did summarize it. Right, you didn't really talk about how you got there from the context. Yeah, I went through the same process, though. So when we do that, we follow your example? Well, all I'm asking, though, is you can give an explanation, but the main thing I'm looking for is, yeah, how did you get there, but basically the categories. Okay. Yeah, the categories are the conclusions you come to, and if you want to add a little note in terms of why, how you got there, that'd be great. Okay. But I'm mainly looking at the categories that you're coming up coming up with when you do the word study on walk. Okay. When you, when you say categories, you're talking about possible meanings? Range of meaning. Range of meaning. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Possible meanings. Okay. And we've come up with three so far. So we're still kind of studying, and we're working our way through the Book of Romans, even though I've kind of gone out of order here. Uh, let's look at another. Let's skip to chapter 7. And I want you to notice, let's read 7 through 9. What then shall we shall we say then, and there's Namas, is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. There it is again, Namas. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What does that tell you? About law right there. The Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. Okay, broadly, the Mosaic Law, yes. But even more specific. The Ten Commandments, except that's what it is. Very good. One of the Ten Commandments. So, in this context, and I'm not saying every one of them, but probably at least the last one, and you don't see any difference in the first three or first two, uh, but at the end there, the law had not said, in other words, this is what the law said, this is what the ten one of the Ten Commandments says, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. So, Paul may be using it right here in a very, very specific sense of one of the Ten Commandments. And if you read on, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, there you go, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, sin came alive when I read that commandment. So I see verse 8 probably referring to what he talked about in verse 7 and verse 9. And I was not, and was, and I was once alive. Apart from the law, there it is again, namas, so he's using it about six, seven times here. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. You see how I found another category here? Now this is a category within a broader category. Uh, this is the category within the Pentateuch, within the Old Testament, or within the Mosaic Covenant. 
within the Old Testament. So now I'm, I'm kind of more refined in terms of the usage here. Now you could say all of these are a reference to the Old Testament, generally. But I think Paul is even more specific in uh, 7, verse 7 through 9. See what I'm doing here? But in other contexts, like in the Gospels, I most assuredly found usages of the Pentateuch. I found usages of the Mosaic Covenant. I found usages where Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He talks about the law, and he's quoting outside of the Pentateuch. So he's talking about the Old Testament in general. And then now we find Paul. And by the way, all of these are in Romans. So... Just because an author uses a word, it does not mean that he uses that word in the identical way, even in the same verse. An example of that is 321, where he seems to change from the way that he used it in 19 to the first usage in verse 21. So when we speak of context, sometimes just a little phrase or an additional word can change that context. See, see what's happening here? See, see what we're doing? So we're doing a word study here. Let's look at another usage. Skip to chapter 4. This one's not as clear, so you probably won't pick it up, so I'll just give it to you. I see another fine distinction in the way that Paul is using the word namas. And, and, and notice, all of these are in the book of Romans. In the same book, Paul uses the word namas in, I think I've got eight, well, we'll see what the number ends up, eight or nine usages. But in uh, 4.16, For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, if you read the context, the other verses as well, uh, you're going to notice, notice a fine distinction here in that Paul probably is not referring to the Pentateuch here. He could be referring to the Mosaic Covenant. And I think he's more specific than the Old Testament in general. And I don't think he's talking about the Ten Commandments specifically. But in this context, he's probably talking about this entire mosaic dispensation or a period of time or dispensation of law. Mosaic dispensation. And then in verse 15, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. So this dispensation would be broader than simply the Mosaic Covenant, but the Mosaic Covenant would also be in view because there's commandments and stipulations within the covenant. 
Does that make sense? This one's not as clear, but I think there's a fine distinction there. You are you are referring to Romans uh, 4.16, right? Yes. Okay, you've got 6.14 on the slide. Okay, I've got, yeah, 4.16. I'm sorry. Yeah, 4.16. 6.14 and 15, I think, is similar. Okay. Yeah, I, I skipped there. I'm sorry. I gave you, I read one, but both of them, I think, refer to the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, since I did mention it, let's read 6, 14 and 15. Uh, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone, let's see, wait a minute, I'm not reading the right passage. 14. For sin shall not be Master over you, for you are not under law. In other words, you're not under that dispensation or that Mosaic Covenant is in effect, but are under a different dispensation. You're under grace. It's a contrast there. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under law, under that whole dispensation of law, but under a new dispensation of grace. May it never be. And then he's going to go on and explain. See where I get that distinction? Yeah, that makes sense. He seems like he's broadening namas, or at least the usage, in that specific context. Now look at chapter 7. Let's go to chapter 7. We are, we're already in 7. But uh, there's a different usage here. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now, this is an illustration that he's going to take from a cultural situation. He's already discussed some theological points in chapter 6, and now in chapter 7 he's going to give an illustration. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, there's namas, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, already, you already can observe something there. Do you observe anything different there, even before I get into the next part? Notice law there, as opposed to the way that we've seen it in general so far? Looks like it's talking about the legal system, perhaps even the Roman legal system. Yes. But notice it's not capitalized. The the translators give you a little hint here in that they don't capitalize it. So it's not talking about the Pentateuch or the Old Testament or Ten Commandments or the Mosaic Covenant. But it's not capitalized. And you're absolutely right. In fact, I think he's talking about civil law here. And now he's going to go into the example for the woman, for the married woman is bound by law, not capitalized. In other words, bound by civil law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. He's not talking about the Old Testament or the Pentateuch or the Covenant or the Mosaic law. He's talking about civil law. He's talking about Roman law here. When the, when the English translation capitalizes something, they're making a decision there, right? Yes. Because yes. The, Greek, the Greek didn't differentiate there. Exactly. Very definitely. 
So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, this is verse 3, if her husband dies, she is free from the namas. And the Greek word is identical in every one of these contexts. So that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. The end of the verse there. So there's namas in all three of those verses. And it's not capitalized. It's referring to the civil law there. Very clearly. So Paul has used it already in six different ways. Some of them closely related. But here's one that's radically different from all of the others. Civil law. And it's even reflected in the translation. So the translators are trying to help you out here. Let's look at this backtrack to chapter 2. We're still in the book of Romans. And let's see if you can see a difference here. Notice 14 and 15. 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law capitalized, right? How is it used there? Now, that one's not the different one. It's capitalized. That that looks like Mosaic Law. Yeah, it's probably Mosaic Law, Mosaic Covenant. One of the above here. For if Gentiles who do not know the law do instinctively the things of the law these not having the law in other words they they don't have the covenant so that might be the mosaic covenant there and notice the next one are a law to themselves not capitalized what there's a different law there that could be their conscience Standards of right and wrong. Yes. And we call that what? Kind of a, a moral law that uh, all people have uh, within, that God has built. Right. Which is our conscience. Exactly. So, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. There you go. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So there's this broad moral law that is different from a statute in a law book under the Roman system, civil law, that's different from the Mosaic dispensation that's not so specific as to be a particular specific commandment, one of the ten, And it's not a reference to the Old Testament in general, or the Mosaic Covenant, or the Pentateuch. It's separate. It's different. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. Now turn to chapter 3. And let's look at verse 27 and 28. Where then is boasting? It is excluded, but what kind of law? There it is. Notice it's not capitalized. What kind of law? Of works? No. But 
by a law of faith. Interestingly, in verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law capitalized. But there's a different law here that's not capitalized, and I don't think he's referring to civil law that it was not capitalized. He's not referring to this conscience or this internal law that's not capitalized. But here's a third non-capitalized word for law. And by the way, in every context, it's namas. It's the same word. How about standard? What kind of standard? Standard, or some translations translated a principle. Mm-hmm. So a principle that acts like a law. Um, now, I don't think Paul uses it, but we use the word law in reference to scientific law. That would be something similar to here. In other words, something that is a, a standard, like you say, or a principle that that exists. So it's it's, and that's different from a moral law, and it's different from the civil law, and it's also non-capitalized. So here you have same author, same book using the identical same word in at least eight different ways. And if you completed your word study, you would find other verses that you would group in these same categories. I've just laid out uh, the a few of those in the book of Romans. But if you did a word study in Namas, uh, some of these you might have three or four. Some of them you might have 20, you, uh, you know, 20 occurrences or whatever. And others you might only have, uh, have it one or two times. Like the last one there, I think that's one of the few times in the New Testament where it's used in the sense of a principle. There may be some others I don't remember. Uh, you come up with eight different categories. And, and by the way, there might be even a couple more outside of the book of Romans, but uh, I wanted to kind of make the point that when we speak of context, context determines meaning, and the same author can give you the little clues in the context that he's changing the way he's using that word. But he gives you those little clues in that context to alert you that he's using a word in a slightly different way. But that's what you do in doing a word study, is you're trying to see how that word is used, or the different ways that it can be used, the different categories or different usages. And then now, if, for example, you're studying Ephesians, and the word namas occurs there, and you've completed your word study, now you're going to select how it's used in that particular context in the book of Ephesians in the passage that you were studying. Make sense? Yeah, I looked in the New King James Version in that Romans 2.14 and they did not have law capitalized where the NASB did. So that can be a difference in translations. 
Exactly. And that's what you'll you'll encounter. You'll find differences in translations. And in fact, I think how does the King James translate three twenty seven and twenty seven there? Three twenty seven. I think NIV uses the word principle. I think uh, 3.27, it says, by what law of works? No, by the law of faith. Okay, it uses law, yeah. Yeah, I think it's the NIV that uses uh, by what principle, because that's the sense in which it's being used there. But it's namas. Okay. So that's what you are tasked to do in the word study uh, using the word walk. And that word, uh, I selected that one is because it's very frequent in uh, the book of Ephesians. So, just kind of to pull it all together, how do we come to meanings when it comes to words? The primary way is we determine the usage, the range of meaning, and we did that in the word study. So the way a word is used helps us to determine meaning. That, along with context, context determines the meaning. In each of those contexts, context varied a little bit, that, cut, that variation in the context changed the meaning of the word. But before you can be at a point to select how is it being used, you have to develop the range of meaning. Etymology, I've stressed over and over, is sometimes useful and oftentimes mainly when you only have two or three or maybe only one usage, but when you have 50, 60, 100, 200, whatever, then etymology becomes less and less important. But even when you only have a few usages, etymology, you have to be careful. It has limitations. It might be helpful, but use it with caution. You can uh, look up synonyms. We did a little of that when we looked up ex-agorazo, and we noticed that there was a word that was used very similar to it, agorazo, and we actually came to the conclusion that those two words are very closely related because one of them is the root of the other. So that was the reason why we did a word study on both of them because it was very useful in that case. So sometimes other synonyms, and synonyms sometimes may not be related, we could have also looked up lutrao, which is also translated redeemed, had we not felt, in other words, if we didn't have a level of confidence that we probably needed to take it further, we might have looked that word up and see if there were some distinctions between lutrao and agarazzo, or if it helped us to refine our conclusions concerning agarazzo. So that's how we determine meanings of words. There's some, some mistakes. So let's look at 
some mistakes that uh, sometimes even good Bible teachers, this will bring us to the end of our discussion on word studies. And uh, a common mistake amongst even good Bible teachers, and I've tried to find a word that is simpler, but I haven't been successful in finding a word, but it's kind of an awkward phrase here, illegitimate totality transfer. So sometimes you might come across that whole phrase, but the concept, you don't need to remember that, but uh, the idea of what is being conveyed there is that after you've done all this work of developing the range of meaning, there is a tendency sometimes by some Bible teachers to almost give the impression, so you need to be careful in teaching that uh, that this doesn't come across. It may be inadvertent and not intentional, but you want to be careful that you might, in explaining how a word may be used, you might mention this word is used in two different ways and you lay them out. It might be conveyed or... I think some Bible teachers mistakenly convey it, that now this word means all of these things in every context. And that's a mistake. And I think you clearly saw in the example, as we walked our way through it, how there's distinctions in the way even Paul is using the identical word in different contexts, even within the same book. So the word namas doesn't have the composite of all eight of these in every context. And sometimes we inadvertently convey that as we we teach it. And I think there are some Bible teachers that uh, don't know that it's a mistake. They do that, I guess, intentionally. There's also another mistake that's made, and this deals with etymology. I've been pointing this out as we've been going. An overemphasis on the meaning of the root and making the root more important than the usage. In other words, you might have a word related to the root in a different context with a maybe even a radically different meaning than the root meaning. Uh, The example that I gave there is the word in English for mouse. I mean, that electronic device has nothing to do with that furry animal that you try to keep out of your house, even though the word is identical. So the root, where that word came from, it came from a furry creature with a tail but only because of the appearance of the device. But other than that, there's no relationship whatsoever. And the, the function has nothing to do with the furry animal. Uh, it was just something that was selected by the inventor to, I guess, identify it more easily. So that's kind of an example of root fallacy. So it has nothing to do with the furry animal. Similarly, some words that are from the same root, oftentimes don't carry the same meaning fully in the same way as you find it in a different context. 
So to force that is also a mistake. A third mistake called the, the dominant meaning is sometimes when a word is used so frequently that that meaning becomes dominant and it overshadows any of these other distinctions. Now, you probably could see how that could occur with the word namas, where you might say, well, it refers to the Mosaic uh, law or the Mosaic covenant. And then you miss the fine distinction that we found in uh, Romans chapter 7, where Paul is speaking about a specific commandment, and he even quotes it. But because we have allowed that dominant meaning to overshadow all the other meanings, we don't we don't observe that fine meaning that is probably Paul's intended meaning in that particular context. Now, another example of how this has happened on a practical level, I've already mentioned in the illustration I gave you that I used this last Sunday of salvation. Oftentimes, when you read that word in a context, you almost assume that it's always used in the sense of salvation from hell or salvation from eternal destiny. But there are a lot of usages, in fact, an equal number where it's used in a present tense sense of salvation in this ongoing salvation from the power of sin. And it has nothing to do with eternal destiny or salvation from hell. The classic example of that one is the Philippians 2.12 passage that I also use Sunday, where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, is salvation on the basis of works? Is it based on what we do? Is it based on obedience to the law? Well, no, because I think we clearly see that salvation is, is by grace, by through faith alone. So how do we interpret that passage? Well, I think if you read the next verse, verse 13, it gives you a clue. And what he's talking about is the whole sanctifying process. He's talking about a salvation in a present tense sense, overcoming sin and being saved from that everyday temptation to fall into sin and the consequences, etc., and when I was teaching Romans 5, I noted that there's several things in the context there that indicate that Paul is using the word salvation there in that present tense sense. And I used the Philippians 2.12 passage to illustrate the difference of usage. So every time you see the word sozo or soteria, the words for salvation, they don't always mean salvation from hell. And in fact, I use the Acts 27 example as well, where it's salvation from a physical danger. So that's a mistake to impose a dominant meaning on every meaning in every context, or even overshadow the fine distinctions of some contexts. There's also called what's, what's called semantic anachronism. And what we mean by that is you don't read a late use of a meaning back into the earlier usage. 
An example that I might use is the word ecclesia in the New Testament is defined for us, particularly in Ephesians 3. But the word occurs in the Septuagint, and there's a corresponding Hebrew word. But in the Septuagint, ecclesia is used in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament has references to the church. In fact, some of those contexts refer to Israel. And it certainly doesn't mean that Israel is the Old Testament church. But when it's used, like in the Septuagint, sometimes it's translated in the English, uh, the congregation of Israel. In other words, the assembly of the nation, the group, the, the, the nation as a group or a, an entity. It's not talking about the church in the Old Testament. That would be semantic anachronism, reading a meaning that you find in the New Testament back into some passages in the Old Testament. Now, you might find a meaning in the New Testament where the word is used in the same way as the Old Testament, but not necessarily always. Does that make sense? Yes. This can also happen when uh, you have a word in the New Testament and maybe you're reading uh, classical Greek. The way that's used in the New Testament may be a theological usage that does not occur in classical Greek. And to read it back would be anachronistic, I guess you could say. So that's semantic anachronism. That's a mistake, so be careful. Uh, that's why we are emphasizing and making clear that uh, we want to make sure that we understand how a particular author is using a particular word in a particular context. And that's the reason I use the word namas as an example to show that even the same author using the same word in the same book can use the, that same word eight different ways. Now, that's unusual, but that's an example. Fifthly, uh, a mistake of overemphasis. And what we mean by this is a word in any context contributes to a broader idea. So don't, even though you put a lot of time and a lot of effort into this particular word, don't let that word overshadow or over be overemphasized to the extent that you miss the meaning of the broader passage that you're teaching. And that's our tendency after we've invested so much time. You know, I want to now convey some of that in my, my teaching. And we as Bible teachers that take pains in explaining uh, are susceptible to to that mistake. So, use the product of your study to fully understand the broader context of what the author is trying to communicate without overemphasizing that particular word in that particular context. In fact, recently I heard a, a sermon. Uh, I don't think it was a very good one, but I heard a sermon where the pastor took a word and I think he even 
well, he overemphasized it because he, he almost built the whole sermon around that word. And as I analyzed the sermon, that passage really did not convey the ideas that he was conveying, and he really didn't teach the passage, but he took it from that one particular word in that passage. So that would be an example of overemphasis. Well, that completes our look at word studies. I didn't plan on it, but we might even finish a little early today. But uh, rather than just leave, let me give you a brief introduction to what we'll do next week. And then we'll pick up from there. We've looked at the biblical text, and I just wanted to give you that for a more background. You don't need to necessarily know all of that. In fact, there's no exam in this course so we're not going to go back and take a look at anything in that. I just wanted to, you to have that so that when you see notes in your text, you know where those notes are coming from. We've completed looking at word studies. And next week, we will spend the entire session talking about structural analysis. Structural analysis. Remember, you made observations on individual words. You made observations on structure. Structure are relationships of words. So anytime you have more than one word, you have structure. And if it's a sentence, you have to have a subject and you have to have a verb. That's structure. So you have a subject related to a verb. That's the action of the subject. That's structure. Now, you've simply made observations on structure. Now, how do you determine meaning from that arrangement of words? What is the meaning conveyed by structure? And what we will do is we will attempt to be thinking God's thoughts after God. That's what we're trying to do. How has God put together his ideas into sentences, paragraphs, uh, sections, subdivisions, divisions, etc.? How has he structured his thinking? And now we want to follow that thinking. So we want to think God's thoughts after him. And I'm going to give you three different ways to analyze structure. And the first one will be the easiest. And by the way, if the others are too difficult, don't worry about it. Because if you do basic analysis, basic analysis will give you 80 to 90 percent of understanding of any given passage, basic analysis. In fact, basic analysis is what you will do before you do the other two. So I'll give you two others next week. And just a quick overview of basic analysis, and then we'll come back, and this is where we'll start next week. Basic analysis involves only four things. Basic analysis involves, first of all, and every one of you can do this. In fact, we've already, I've already introduced you to this. First thing you do is just isolate a complete sentence. 
And what we're doing now is analyzing the grammar. We're, we're doing analysis on the grammar within a sentence. So you have to know when the sentence begins and where the sentence ends. So you isolate it, and now you go within. Second thing you do is you identify the clauses. Every sentence will have an independent clause, so now you want to identify it. The sentence, Jesus wept, one independent clause, one subject, one verb, one complete sentence. Done. You identified the clause, one clause. A compound sentence will have two independent clauses, at least two, maybe more. Complex sentence will have at least, well, every sentence will have an independent clause. And if it's complex, then it will have a dependent clause, at least one of each. Compound complex will have at least two independent clauses and maybe one or more dependent clauses. So you want to identify all of those. And you go deeper into each of those. Now you analyze each of those by identifying the subjects and the verb. If it is a clause and or a sentence, it'll have a subject and it'll have a verb. If it does not, then it's not a sentence. Sometimes the subject, as you noticed in the last assignment, sometimes the subject is within the verb or it's understood. And uh, the fourth thing is you identify or you deal with any other grammatical issues in that sentence that needs to be dealt with. Phrases, participles, infinitives, trying to identify them and understand them. And if you can identify all these and understand them, that's basic analysis. So... We'll talk some more about that, and I'll give you an example and walk you through that, and then we'll look at a couple other ways of analyzing structure as well. One of them is called mechanical layout. It's another one. And the third one is diagramming. And I'll give you the advantages of all of these, and we'll look at more detail. Okay, that's, we're a few minutes early, but that's okay. Let's see, who's supposed to close for us? Is that you, Mark? Yes, it is. I'm ready. <laughs> Go ahead. All right, let's pray. Uh, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you as our sovereign creator uh, for your great love to us. Uh, you sent your son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we could have a relationship with you. And we are eternally grateful. Father, as we begin uh, the section of the course where we're attempting to uh, learn and to uh, think your thoughts after you, uh, it's exciting, but it's also challenging. Uh, we thank you for, for Dr. Ray and his work in preparing this material and teaching us uh, the things we need to know to do it properly, uh, because we want to glorify you in, in this time in our sanctifying phase of life uh, to glorify you with what we think, say, and do. So, Father, help us to apply these things and then to teach these things to others as we have opportunity, making disciples for Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any questions before we all leave? Well, I just want to say good luck to you uh, teaching your creation class. Don't, don't wish me luck. Pray for me. <laughs> 
Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll be uh, doing that seminar seven uh, in an hour from now. So I've got to get there and set up and all that. So appreciate your prayers. Just a, just a quick question, though. How long till it's on your website? Uh, a couple of days. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it'll, it'll be on there before we meet next week. So give me a couple of days to get it up there. If Barb were doing it, she'd have it up tonight, but she's not going to hear it. Okay, thank you all. We'll see you tomorrow, or next week, rather. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night.